This morning we continue in our series of messages on the five points of Calvinism, uh, which we see follows the acrostic for TULIP and its total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and then perseverance of the saints. And we're right up to the middle point, which is the L in TULIP, limited atonement. Now, first of all, we're going to read from the canons of Dort. And it's found in the back of the gray hymnal on page 934. It's the second main point. And we're going to be reading just the one article, Article 8. It's, it's entitled, The Saving Effectiveness of Christ's Death. For it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones in order that he might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father that he should grant them faith, which, like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, he acquired for them by his death, that he should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself, a glorious people, without spot or wrinkle. That concludes our reading of Article 8 from the Canons of Dort. And then we're going to look at a scripture passage that's found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, and reading verses 11 through 15. It may seem like we, we kind of begin a section and end right away in verse 15, but it actually is a good place for us uh, to conclude our passage for this morning. Hebrews 9, beginning with verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer 
sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That concludes our reading. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we continue in our series this morning, I discovered that this particular point in the five points of Calvinism, limited atonement, is actually the most controversial one. And it's also, in many ways, the one that's perhaps the hardest to really understand or comprehend. In fact, our subject, our topic this morning that we're looking at, continues to be discussed and debated earnestly. And as I was doing my research, it was obvious to me that many Bible scholars struggle with fully comprehending the implications of denying limited atonement or saying that it's unbiblical. In fact, what I came to realize is that all five points are intimately interconnected and interrelated. And so you need to affirm all five together. You can't just pick and choose. So we're going to do a quick review. First of all, total depravity, that was our first topic, teaches that every person is tainted by sin. That sin affects a person's whole being. Unconditional election, which we looked at last week, is, I believe, a logical conclusion to the whole concept of total depravity. That is, since no one is able to be perfectly righteous, God's choosing cannot be based on our works or deeds. If our works or deeds determined our salvation, no one would meet the requirements in order to be saved. Therefore, God chooses those within his kingdom based on his own will. Election is therefore unconditional. Now, today's topic of limited atonement, once again, I feel is the next logical step. Since God chooses based upon his will and his desire, the atoning work of Jesus must then be specifically applied to those who are elect in order for their salvation to be effective. In other words, Christ's atonement is not merely given to make it possible for sinners to be saved. Rather, Christ's atonement is effective for those who are chosen. At the Synod of Dort, 
the Armenians argued that what Jesus accomplished on the cross merely made it possible for people to then choose to be saved. John Owen, an early Puritan writer, after considering that, writes, Arminians pretend that Christ died for all men, and yet, in effect, they make him die to no particular man at all. John Piper, in one of his books, says, we, see that, we say that in the cross, God had in view the actual effective redemption of his children from all that would destroy them, including their own unbelief. And we affirm that when Christ died, particularly for his bride, the church, he did not simply create a possibility or an opportunity for salvation, but really purchased and infallibly secured for them all that is necessary for them to be saved, including the grace of regeneration and the gift of faith. So we're going to now turn our attention to our text in chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, and we're going to go through it rather carefully. We're going to see as our main theme that the blood of Jesus is of infinite value and worth to the believer. So we begin our journey in, in verses 11 and 12. And what we learn in these two verses is that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus did what the high priest back in the Old Testament could only symbolize. Jesus alone was able to enter into heaven. Now we see a comparison and a contrast. We see the Old Testament high priest who was to be born from the tribe of Aaron. It was the Aaronic priesthood. We see in the New Testament Jesus is the high priest of all, we're told, the good things that are to come. In the Old Testament, we see the high priest would enter into the tabernacle. And it was a tabernacle made by human hands, just a building. Jesus Christ in the New Testament entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle, which we'll look at shortly. The high priest entered and offered the blood of goats and calves. Jesus, in the New Testament, entered through his own blood. Finally, the high priest in the Old Testament every year had to repeat that same sacrifice over and over and over. But Jesus Christ, in the New Testament or the New Covenant, entered the holy place once for all. We're told Jesus entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now, what does that mean? It's the tabernacle not made by human hands. It's a tabernacle that is not of this creation. It's heaven. The earthly tabernacle is a copy, a pattern of the heavenly reality. 
Every picture that we find of the Bible, every image in the Bible uh, of heaven, is described in terms of the temple. So, Jesus did something that no other high priest ever could do. He entered into heaven in order to minister a sacrifice. And he was that sacrifice. He ministered not only as the priest, the high priest, but also he was the offering. The blood which he offered was his own. Then we move on to verses 13 and 14. Again, we see a comparison. This time it is between that which is weak and that which is strong. And the point that is being made is that that which was intrinsically weak was able to accomplish something. And if that's the case, how much more will it be that that which is intrinsically stronger be able to accomplish even more? That which is weak is identified as the offering of the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer that are sprinkled. That which is stronger is how much more will the blood of Jesus Christ through whom the eternal spirit offered himself, be effective unto salvation. That which is weak in the Old Testament was that the blood was shed, the sacrifices were offered, in order for the flesh to be made holy or to be clean. But in the New Testament and under Jesus Christ, we're told that our consciences are cleansed and we serve the living God. So we see the old system, which provided an outward cleansing of the flesh, which, which they called a ritual cleansing. But then we see the New Testament, and it provides much more. It's a cleansing from the inside out. It's a cleansing of the conscience. It provides a real and lasting forgiveness. It changes a person's very nature. The old system communicated, if anyone will make a sacrifice, he can become ritually clean on the outside. But the new covenant communicates, if anyone is in Christ, he has become a new creature. So notice the movement that we see in this passage. It literally goes from death to life. And the point that's being made is that the most that the law could ever do in the Old Testament practices was to bring about a ritual cleaning. But Jesus does so much more. He cleanses from the inside out. And the result is not so that we can go out and live as we please, but rather that we can go and live out our lives as he pleases, that we might serve our living God. That brings us then to uh, verse 15, which is, I believe, <clears throat> believe, the central truth statement in this passage. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. These words remind us that an arbitrator has been chosen and has been called to mediate the covenant that God makes with us. That mediator is Jesus Christ. He's the one who is the go-between. Jesus is our representative. He's the one who stands up and, and bridges the gap between God and us. And he represents God to us as well, and men to God. The priest served as a mediator in the Old Covenant, but there... Their work was never done. They were kept from the presence of God because only the high priest could enter the veil, and that was one time a year, to enter into the presence of God. And so, in the old covenant, no one could be that ultimate mediator. It was sufficient for one year and then had to be repeated again and again every year. Jesus is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. The blood of Jesus is of infinite value and worth. It is because it's the only sacrifice that is acceptable for our sin. From eternity to eternity, there is and has been and always will be only one way of salvation, that is through the blood of Christ. You see, the Arminians basically were saying God you know, could make a, a choice. He, he didn't have to um, pick from you know, different options. But, and that Christ you know, was the best. The, the, what they said is that men could choose salvation. But there's always been only one way. Peter summarizes it well in Acts 4, verse 12, when he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So it is the death of Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood, that completes the sacrifice for our sin. So nothing that you and I do can add to the atonement that Jesus Christ has done. Often this is misunderstood. And that's why people look at the idea of limited atonement and say that if that's the case, God isn't fair. Limited atonement does not mean that there's something missing or lacking in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It does not mean that there wasn't enough power through the blood of Jesus and that he needs us to help him. The nature of the atonement of Christ is that it is complete and sufficient. The death of Jesus doesn't just open the door for everybody to be saved. That would again be saying that Jesus Christ merely makes it possible for us to save ourselves. Rather, what this says is that 
His death is the actual, certain, real, and definite means of salvation for a specific people. So we must appreciate the necessity and the meaning of Christ's salvation. Jesus was born to die. He died in order to save those whom the Father has called. Jo uh, God spoke to Joseph in Matthew 1, 21, and said, She, referring to Mary, will give birth to a son. You are to give to him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So he is the only way of salvation. Also, it's the blood of Christ that saves us from God's righteous judgment. We know that God is holy and that he's infinite. We know that he demands satisfaction for sin. And he wants perfect satisfaction, not just anything. And only Jesus Christ can meet and satisfy our infinite and holy God. Paul tells us that the curse of God rested on Jesus when he hung on the cross. In Galatians 3 verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Christ's death really accomplished something. He really did receive God's wrath for our sin. He became our substitute. He made satisfaction on our behalf. And all of this is through the infinite mercy and love of God. Mercy and justice go hand in hand. And God's love is seen exactly in that, that he gave his son Jesus Christ as a full propitiation, is what Paul says, for our sins. Romans 8.32 says, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Jesus paid the price that you and I could not pay. The bigger word is substitutionary atonement. He was the one who was bruised for our iniquities, we're told in the book of Isaiah. It is through his stripes that we are healed. Jesus became sin for us that we then might become the righteousness of God. Apart from Jesus, we would be forever condemned in our sin. But in him, we have eternal life. Finally, we see that the cost of Christ's blood is of infinite value because it alone is sufficient for salvation. What that means is that Jesus saves to the utmost. He doesn't just make salvation possible. He actually saves. There's a familiar chorus to a song. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. 
There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. It is Jesus who saves. At the cross, he saved you and me. He is the one who completes the sacrifice. And that is where all of our hope resides. I want to encourage you over the course of this upcoming week to prepare yourself for communion that we will be celebrating next Sunday. Prepare yourself to come and to gather to remember the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior. And it was given for you and for me. And limited atonement reminds us that God himself knows who we are. He knows the depth of our hearts. And because of this, he is able to intercede for us personally and effectively. Our salvation is truly anchored on Christ's atoning work. Let's join together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks that even though we are sinners, Christ died for us. And we are overwhelmed by that teaching that the work the atonement of Jesus is for a particular and specific people, for those whom you have chosen and elected. And that it is completely sufficient for our salvation. Lord, we pray that as we enter into this week, we would reflect on that amazing gift and may we come prepared to join around the table of our Lord as the body of Christ, the church. And to again remember the many blessings that you have given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.